Welcome to the newest, most cutting-edge, most, well, I'll say revelatory episode of Disclosure to Date. My name is Sean Boonstra. I'm the director for the Voice of Prophecy Radio Network and the host of this show. Today, I think you're going to want to stick around for the next, oh, 58 minutes or so, because I have just finished reading what I think might be one of the best books on the conflict between faith and science that I have read in recent years. And today I've actually got the author, Clifford Goldstein, in studio. Well, not in studio. I think he's on the phone. Guys, is he waiting on the phone? Thumbs up from the control booth. He's waiting on the phone. And of course, if you've been listening to Disclosure at all, you know Cliff Goldstein is no stranger to the show. I think he's been on the program a couple of times in the last couple of years. But now he's come out with a brand new book called Baptizing the Devil. Baptizing the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. Now, I've got to say, Cliff has written well over 20 books, and I've read, I think I've read most of them over the years. But I've got to say, as I've gone through this volume in recent days, I think this is probably his best. I mean, it's, it's not that the rest of his books weren't good, but I think this is the best because it deals with something a lot of people think about, and it deals with it remarkably well. And that topic is the perceived tension out there between faith and science. Um, in fact, just a few years ago, I was actually sitting in a real estate office with my wife uh, in Washington, D.C., and I was signing a lease for a house that I was going to rent in the area and uh, sat down. And it turns out that the landlord, the owner of the home, was an astronomer, a guy who worked on the Hubble telescope. And, and when the broker, the real estate agent, asked me what I did for a living and I told her I was a preacher, she said, oh, the two of you should get together for a discussion, a scientist and a preacher. I'd love to be a fly on the wall. That would be incredibly interesting. And what she thought she was saying is that she knew there'd be a fight, a debate. By the expression on her face, I knew what she meant. She, think, she, she thought there'd be fireworks in the room, the superstitious religious guy up against cold, hard, factual science. And of course... The heated debate never happened because uh, the landlord was a great guy. My wife and I had a very good relationship with him over the next while while we rented his home. But I've got to say that real estate agents' reaction is not an anomaly. Ever since the middle of the 19th century, roughly, the perceived tension between faith and science has been growing in the Western world, and a lot of faith communities have felt the need to find some kind of compromise when it comes to the subject of human origins. Where exactly did the human race come from? Science says random chance plus billions of years, that's how we got here. The book of Genesis says that a divine being brought us into existence. And in this new book, Baptizing the Devil, Clifford Goldstein explores the question of whether or not Christians need to compromise with Darwin, or even if they should. So, Cliff, I think you're there on the phone. Welcome back to the show. Hey. Glad to be here and look forward to getting into a discussion. Yeah, hey, I think before we begin the discussion, I probably owe you an, a, pub, a public apology uh, for something that I did to you recently. And uh, you were speaking on live TV, and I thought to myself, you know, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to see if Cliff has left his cell phone on. And what I thought would happen is it would buzz in your pocket and you'd look distracted for half a second. Uh, but you were actually speaking from your device, and I wiped out your speaking notes while you were up front. So... In front of the entire world, I owe you an apology. It's half-hearted, though, Cliff. It's a half-hearted apology because I have watched it. What's that? hear the sorrow in your voice. Yeah. Oh, it was the best moment of my entire year. When when you got shut down that speech, I thought, okay, now I have to be careful because uh, you're going to get even. Yeah, that was pretty funny, though. We're done. 
We're done, so that's cool. Yeah, okay. Well, what was funny is that other people watching got the same idea and started calling in, too. So I'm yeah, not yeah, alone. I yeah, I got a little discombobulated by the time we were done with that. So. <laughs> hey, listen, the title of the book is certainly provocative, Baptizing the Devil. If you're um, watching the simulcast online, I'll hold it up so the camera can see the book. I've got a shiny new copy in my hand, Baptizing the Devil, a provocative title. Why that title? Well, I was, as I'm writing the book, I didn't have a title, and I came to a place where I thought, well, you know, I need an image. I want to use some kind of image in which I say to Christians, hey, are you sure you really want to try to incorporate evolution into your religion? You know, And, and so I'm thinking I need a some kind of metaphor or image, and then as I'm writing, I suddenly thought this, oh, baptizing the devil, that would be a good image to, to use. And I thought, wow, I like that image. It catches something. And I thought that catches the essence of what I'm trying to say. So I thought, hey, here's the title of my book. Okay, so I love the title. It made me pick up the book. Um, even before you'd mentioned to me, I think, that you were working on it, I, I got interested in this title. And you're really dealing, I think you mentioned it a moment ago, you're dealing with this idea Christians want to adopt, somehow adopt the theory of evolution into their belief system for a number of reasons, and, and we may get into that a little bit later. But one of the things I found most interesting is that we're talking about the tension, the perceived tension between science and faith, but there's yeah. another word that you bring into the dialogue that I think encapsulates what the discussion's really about. You mentioned scientism. What's sure. the difference between science and scientism? What are you discussing when you talk about scientism? Well, scientism, and again, there are different ways that people define it, but basically I'm defining it here as the idea that all reality is purely materialistic, okay? Atoms, this is nothing new, as centuries before Christ, somebody once said all there is are atoms in the void. But it's this idea that, well... Because all reality is purely materialistic, then the only true way to know reality, the only true way to understand it, is through science, because science studies the physical world. So scientism is really, it's a philosophy. It's a philosophy. It's not a science. It's a philosophy which says, all reality is purely materialistic. Therefore, if we're going to understand reality, science has proven itself the best way to do it. There, I think I quote in the book, it was a philosopher once said, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. That, I think, catches the essence of scientism. So we're talking now about a philosophy, a belief system, and what science can produce. Not science itself, because I don't think anybody would argue that science has produced some spectacular results, particularly since the Industrial Revolution. I like the fact that recently I got an ear infection and I could take some antibiotics. I love that. Something that might have killed me 100 years ago can be handled because of scientific inquiry. I don't think we're talking about that. What you're addressing is the philosophy that science is the only path to truth. Yeah, exactly. And, it's, and that if science goes, says it's wrong, or if science can't explain it, then it's... It, or, or then it's not true, it's not real, in other, in, in other words. Yeah, it's just this idea that, well, among scientists, they joke, they say all true science is, bio, is, is physics. 
Everything else is stamp collecting. <laughs> uh, we're just broadening. You know, all other inquiry is mythology, but true knowledge is science. That's what we're dealing with here. And it's unfortunately, it's, it's wrong, and it leads to some very false conclusions in science itself. Is which I deal with in the book. Now, in the book, I noticed early on, I think one of the things that really pulled me in, I can't remember if it was the first or second chapter, you got into the story of Galileo, which um, I think that's the second chapter. And with Galileo, what got my interest there is that Galileo is often held out by skeptics and atheists as the prime example of how superstitious religious people uh, were fighting the science of the day. And you really unpack what actually happened in the episode uh, with Galileo. Um, help us understand why most modern atheist interpretation of what happened in the I, I, in the story of Galileo um, is actually misguided, how they get it wrong. Well, this is used as the archetypal example of ignorant, superstitious religionists fighting against the rational, logical progress of science. And I believe Rightly so, I turn that upside down. Because look, nothing in the Bible teaches that the earth sits immobile at the center of the universe and that all the planets and stars orbit the earth in perfect circles at constant speeds. That's not Bible. That's the science of the day, which was Aristotle. Right. That's what Aristotle taught. And what happened was, in this case, the Christian church, in this case, the, the Roman church, buying into the science of its time, melded the science with the religion and interpreted the Bible through the science of Aristotle, who Aristotle did teach that the earth sat immobile at the center of the universe and all the stars and planets and everything circled it. That's not biblical. That's science. That was the latest and greatest science. And which, by the way, I talk about in the book, too. People had a lot of very good reasons for believing that. In other words, they had a lot of very good reasons for believing the, the Aristotelian view. Well, that view turned out to be wrong, but because the church had, as the church often does, had compromised with the surrounding culture, with the science, they came away with egg on its face. So I argue that the theistic evolutionists today, those who try to meld and try to incorporate evolution in the Bible, they are the spiritual heirs of the Roman Catholic Church, the Inquisition, because they had done the same thing with the science of their time. Aristotle was the Darwin of their era, and today I say Darwin is the Aristotle of our era. Now that, yeah, I think that's what really pulled me in, is that you, you you flip that whole story on its head, to reveal that those who use it to critique people of faith are actually guilty of the crime that's found in that story. And I think in, in, in the Galileo's day, the Aristotelian model was that the Earth sits at the center of the universe and there are these concentric spheres that circle yeah. the Earth and the sun is on one of those. And, and it was not a horrible predictive model, right? You could actually— it, No, pre- it worked! It, here's the thing. 
this is the point that I make, and this is an important point. You had a theory that said the Earth sat in the center of the universe. Wrong. Right. That it was immobile. Wrong. Orbited by the planets. Wrong. Orbited at constant speeds. Wrong. Orbited at perfect circles. Wrong. And you know what? It worked. You could make predictions. You could, you know, you you could even you could sail your ship from Venice to to Genoa using a system that was wrong in every way. And this leads into an important point that I talk about in the book that a lot of people don't grasp. Just because a theory works, just because you can make accurate predictions with the theory is a completely separate issue from whether the theory is true or not. You right. can make accurate predictions or even build technology from a theory that turns out to be wrong. And a lot of people are stunned at that realization. All right, I'm watching the clock on the wall. I do want to come back to that thought because sure. that is really, really important. We have often had models that are predictive and useful but prove to be wrong, and I think you bring up the issue of Newton in the book and what happened with him. So what we're going to do is take a quick book uh, break, not a quick book. I'll read the book during the break. You take a break and go do know what you need to do, and we'll be back in a moment with Clifford Goldstein, author of a brand-new title, Baptizing the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. Do Christians really need to compromise with Darwinian evolution? Is it a good idea to bring that into our faith system? My name is Sean Boonstra. I'll be right back after this. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers and guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and a second chance at life. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we are back from the break. My guest today, Clifford Goldstein, author of the brand new book, Baptizing the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. And Cliff, people, where can people get a copy of this book? Before we start to dissect the content a little bit more, uh, you have a website that goes with this? Yeah, it's called, the website is just baptizingthedevil.com, one word. And that'll just link you right to the Amazon site, and you can download it as an ebook or order the print book. For some reason, Amazon, at least at this time, is still saying it's out of stock, but you could pre-order. But yeah, you can get it on Amazon, or there are some local bookstores you could 
you could find them in as well, I'm sure. But if you want for sure, just go to Amazon or to our website, baptizingthedevil.com. Baptizingthedevil.com. Certainly an intriguing title. We were talking uh, just before the break about the idea of Galileo, how it was not really biblical theology that was being used to, uh, to counter Galileo. It was Aristotelian cosmology. It was an Aristotelian was model of the universe. It was the, it was the latest and greatest prevailing science of the time that some of the world's smartest people, most educated people believed, and which they had quite a lot of, quote, scientific empirical evidence to believe it. Okay? Well, because the model worked, didn't it? I mean, you could yes, predict... You could predict the phases of the moon. You could predict sure. where the constellations and the planets would be. Although I wonder how they would predict the retrograde motion of planets with this concentric sphere business. You know, if the well, they but, well, what they did was they did what science does today as well. They add modifications to it. They modify it. They don't give up their main system, but someone once called it a a belt of auxiliary hypotheses. You add, all right, well, this doesn't quite fit, so we don't want to throw out the whole theory, so we'll modify this here a little bit. And that doesn't fit, we'll modify. And even today, some of the most proven theories in the world that are proven sometimes require a little bit of tweaking and ad hoc adjusting as well. It's just the nature of science as a whole. Well, you know, I laugh when Aristotle's name comes up because I um, I was a big fan of Aristotle in college because he seemed to be the more objective uh, philosopher. He was he was the one who sort of steered us down the road to empirical study of the yeah. universe around us. And I like that better than Plato, who was dealing with forms and sort of a Gnostic, what later Christian heretics would, Gnostics would uh, call their view of the universe that there is no real virtue in what is material and physical. Aristotle was a little more real. But what makes me laugh about it is that it was settled science for years and years, I mean centuries. A thousand that, years! Yeah, well, Aristotle actually said, I think he was parading around the front one day in front of his students, and he said, men have more teeth than women. And so somebody wrote that down. Well, if Aristotle says that, and you know, nobody questioned it for centuries. For centuries, it was assumed men had more, because nobody bothered to open Mrs. Aristotle's mouth and actually count her teeth. Yeah. Well, we, it's very hard for us today to realize the influence that Aristotle had in his time when students would, would enter the university in like the 1400s, the 1500s, I think at Cambridge, they had a sign, a thing saying they would, would, would reject any teaching that went against the philosopher. Wow. And that meant Aristotle. So in many ways, Aristotle was the Darwin of his era, even if he was even more highly exalted than Darwin is today. Well, listen, one, one issue is that, we, that we've touched on is the idea that these models worked. Aristotle's model, to an extent, worked. And in the book, you bring up the story of Newtonian physics, which was the standard for like four centuries until you get Einstein, um, or a little less than four centuries, I guess. And I found it intriguing that you mentioned that Newton was used to bring a failed Apollo mission back home. Yeah. Well, see, here's the thing. Newtonian physics works. It works at at least at, at certain speeds when you don't have when when things aren't too massive for anything we need for the most part 
Newtonian physics works. As I said in the book, the irony is Newton built his theories on his theory on gravity on two false assumptions, absolute space and absolute time. That was wrong. Newton had no idea what gravity was. He said that the idea of bodies influencing them through empty space is absurd. He doesn't know why anybody would believe it. He's talking about his own theory. And finally, eventually, Newton's theory had been superseded. Some say overturned by Einstein. I think that's a little too strong. But yet, in many ways, it's still considered one of the most successful scientific theories. Well, I know we still used it in physics class. I mean, everything that deals with the real world around you, the numbers still work. It still works. Where it fell apart was in the microscopic world. If you get down to the atomic level, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, or in the massive level, like with black holes and so on and so forth. It doesn't work there either. But the point is, the theory worked, even though it was there were fundamental flaws in it. And that's a point, because sometimes people will say to you, but but the science works, as if suddenly, well, you know, you hear the argument, well, you know, you reject science, but, you know, you get in airplanes that fly, and you go to the doctor who uses science, but you reject science when it comes to evolution. It's a total, they're mixing apples and oranges. The fact that a theory works or you could get practical fruit from it is in many ways totally irrelevant from the question of whether the theory itself is correct or not. And that's a very powerful thought. I think a little later in the show, I want to get to what the issues are with Darwinism and whether or not it is actually, does it even qualify as empirical science? Um, because to have empirical science, and in, in a physics lab, I can put a cart on a ramp, and I can do the math and do it a thousand times, comes out the same way, and I'm not sure we can apply that standard to Darwin. Um, no, we'll come to that in a minute, because I want to talk about the issues with scientism itself, and at one point in the book, you make reference to Immanuel Kant and phenomenal knowledge, and I think the point you're raising is there are actually limits in the empirical scientific method as to what we know we can know. I mean, that's empiricism. Yeah. Right? Epistemology yeah. is the science of what do we know and how do we know we know it. Sure. Well, actually, it hit me one day as I'm researching this book, and I'm reading a lot of these philosophies of science, and then it suddenly hit me one day, all I'm reading is epistemology, which, as you said, epistemology is a study of how we know what we know, not what we know, but when we say I know something, when I say I know I have a toothache, and I say I know two plus two equals four, I'm saying two different things. I know them two different ways, and epistemology is the study of that. Well, it hit me one day, not only am I studying epistemology, I'm studying an empiricist epistemology, and this is when we use our senses to discern the world. Well, For an awful lot of philosophers, the most distrustful way of coming to knowledge is through your senses. Our senses deceive us all the time. I mean, our senses, what could be more common sense than that the earth doesn't move? I mean, does the earth look like it moves? Does it feel like it moves? I throw a ball up in the air. The ball falls right back where I dropped it if I throw it straight up. If the earth moved, it should have moved to the left of me, to the right of me, to the front of me, or behind me. And while it suddenly hit me, 
that science is just an empiricist epistemology. And for many thinkers, that is the worst way to try to come to certain knowledge. So there are some real limits on how much we can actually know through the method of observation. Let me, let me give you an example, Sean, that I use sometimes for, for our senses. Imagine you're standing in a room. Say you're in front of an auditorium, 50 people, whatever, and tell them, okay, everybody be quiet. Nobody say a word. Nobody hears. And I said, there's no noise, is there? And then I take out my cell phone and I tune in to the, to, to the, or I take a radio and I turn into the nearest radio station or I flip the dial and you hear music, you hear laughter, you hear talking. I said, folks, that stuff didn't originate in the radio. That stuff is all there in the air, all around us, as real as my voice, as real as, 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 as my breath, as real as me. And yet, given the limits of our senses, given the limits of our body, this whole reality is completely inaccessible to us. And I say, what else out there is there that is completely inaccessible to us because of the limits of our senses, but is just as real as the things we can see or hear. You know, anyway, that's just a thought. I'm thinking about the, the science of death, which is kind of a morbid thing to bring up, but if you were to ask a doctor 200 years ago what is the moment of death, he would come to a completely different conclusion than somebody would today. We keep actually moving that marker further and further oh, back because well, we're developing ways to read alpha waves in the brain. and. Sure. And uh, so we can't see everything. And I guess the big question is, what is it we don't know? And if you don't even have the method of looking at that, what you don't know is a huge field of knowledge, and you don't even know what it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that there's, it amazes me how it's funny. It's just the old thing. You know, the more I learn, the less I realize that I know. And there is this idea, well, science has the answers to everything. Science is a very narrow, narrow, specialized way of looking at the world. Very fruitful at times. No, I don't want to deny that. But again, the idea of the fruitfulness of something is a total separate issue from whether it's true or not. And I think this is very important in the creation-evolution debate because because some people say, well, it's just a model, and we don't care whether it's true or not. If it can, you can build a better gadget on this model... But when, when, when Richard Dawkins or, a, or an evolutionary biologist says 500 million years ago the dinosaurs evolved feathers or, or something like that, they're not talking a hypothetical model. They mean literally that there was a time 500 years ago and there was a dinosaur 500 million years ago and this dinosaur did indeed evolve feathers. So it's it's kind of important what we, we we remember that that when you're dealing with certain that many of these people are making claims about the truth of their theory and these are the claims of course that people like myself and others challenge it's not true well i, I think and that that's the whole point it's not demonstrable it's not really empirical science rocket science is i can fire a thousand rockets in a row and hit the moon every time i know my math is good how do i prove the dinosaur and the feathers. How do I do it? Well, here's, here's a point, Sean, that I make, I reiterate through my book over and over, and it's, imp 
important that people realize realize the point here because sometimes they they mix it together well that you can create your rocket the science works therefore the science has got to be true but here's the thing scientists today could put something in a lab there's some music coming yeah, up. Yeah, no, the music tells me that I'm running out of time for this segment. Cliff, hold okay. that thought. I want to come yeah. back to it because yeah. this is central yeah. to the whole book. The yeah. book is... Yeah, this bap- is a crucial point, this yeah. thought right here. Okay, Baptizing good. the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. The author is Clifford Goldstein, the author of quite a few books. They're all excellent, but I think this is one of his best. You can find a copy of the book at baptizingthedevil.com, which will take you to Amazon. We're going to take a quick break, listen to this information, and I'll be right back. All around us, the world is changing. Homes are being lost. Lives are being threatened. And some people are asking the question, does God even care about me? The Bible answers that question, and what it says is very encouraging. Find out what God says regarding this topic and some of life's greatest issues in our free Discover Bible Guides. You can get yours by going to VOP.com, click on Study, or call us at 888-456-7933. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Does my life really matter to God? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter the most to you. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. The book is Baptizing the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. The author is Clifford Goldstein. And if there is just one title you add to your library on the subject of faith and science or Christianity and evolution, this is the one title that you really need to have. It is probably the most comprehensive book, the best written book I've seen on the subject. And uh, Cliff is in studio with me today. And Cliff, just before the break, we were talking about the fact that um, that the theory of evolution is not really empirical science. So here's a, yeah, and this is an important point that people need to remember. Scientists could take something and they could put it in a lab today, okay, and they can bombard it with x-rays, they can bombard it with proton beams, they can, they can dissect it, they can dye it, they can take it apart and put it back together. They can do all this stuff in one lab, and somebody could do something in a, the same thing in another lab, and somebody could do the same thing in another lab to the material that's here and now. And you know what? When they're done, they disagree. They could disagree over what they see, what it means, and so on, what theories explain it. And yet at the same time, then we're supposed to bow down and genuflect in 
intellectual obsequiousness to every time some scientist makes a claim about, oh, we figured there was a genetic mutation occurred 800 million years ago, and this caused such and such. You know, they're speculating. I mean, they disagree over what they see here and now in science. And I think you and raise yeah. an important point because yeah. data is data, but it has to be interpreted. Somebody, oh. a human being stands between me and that data. Oh, of course, you know, there's a whole, there's one thought that people say facts are theory laden. That how do you even, some argue that a scientist can't even begin to look at the data until he has some idea of what he's looking for. He has some idea of a theory so he starts getting data based on that theory. And here's the thing. You could have, you know, in fact, it's fascinating. Well, let me give you an example, something that happened to me that fits right in with this. I grew up on evolution, never questioned evolution. And then I found myself one day a born-again believer, and I struggled with this. I sensed a compromise. Now, and it was somebody gave me a book to read, and Sean, it opened my eyes. I talked about this. Look. Nobody denies the bones are in the ground. Nobody denies the fossils are in the ground. They're there. And yet it was for the first time in my life. See, all my life, I was taught only one way to interpret what they meant. I was taught them only through an evolutionary framework. And then suddenly I realized, hey, look, nobody's denying the data. The bones are in the ground, but the big question is, how do you interpret what that means? And that's the million-dollar question in science. And you know what? And I talk about this in the book, too, Sean. One of the great conundrums in science is not whether such and such a theory is true. There's millions of examples of that. But one of the great questions that they've never resolved is more of a meta question. What does it mean even to say that a theory is true? What do, how do we know if a theory is true? What does that mean? And even that is something that science, that philosophers of science still debate. So the bottom, I think the bottom line is most of us in the public, we are under this illusion of this cold-hearted, rational, scientific, over-objective scientific process in which these men and these women, almost like machines, coldly, rationally interpret the facts, qua facts, as they are, and so on. And, And that's how science gets to truth, and that's such a myth. Sure, again, we're bamboozled because all the technology that works. But as I repeat again, the fact that the technology works is a total separate issue from whether the theory behind it is true. I like at one point in the book you quote the philosopher Karl Popper who says scientific knowledge is built on a swamp rather than bedrock. Um, And I think there's some truth to that. I've got all these questions. You know, they say, well, we can radio date this. Well, what evidence do you have that radioactive materials decayed at the same rate a oh, yeah. billion years ago? You don't know that. You'd have in to. Fact, you know, yeah, in fact, you no. Know, it's so funny you bring that up. I have a good friend of mine, and I didn't put this in the book, and I would have liked to have. I have a good friend of mine who's strong evolutionist, 
but it's radiometric dating and, and all this stuff. And at one point I asked him, I said, look, what, what, at what is the deepest level? And because, you know, radioactive dating, any of this is a, is, is an idea built upon another idea built upon another idea. You know, it, it, things aren't done in isolation. And I said, and you're radiometric dating and all that. Where is the one place where you hit absolute something solid, that it's absolute solid, that it can't be wrong, that it's immovable? How far down in the chain? And he just says, well, science doesn't work that way. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Well, I understood that now, but there are a lot of people, they don't understand understand that. It's But it's science, and there's something absolute. I mean, I have a whole chapter in Deer there where I deal with this idea is that sooner or later, justification for any theory ends, and you have to reach out and take a leap of faith. Right. Honest scientists will admit that. They said, well, this is as far as we go. We can't really explain things any further, so we just have to assume this here and there, which is another word. For taking a leap of faith. Now, they might have very good logical reasons for doing that. And if they explain their reasons to you, you might say, hey, I've got very, that does sound logical. And they might explain it and convince everybody in the world it's logical. And that's fine. But that's a total separate issue from whether it really is logical, whether it really is true or not. I think one of the things that really underlines the fact that there is an element of faith, there is an element of assumption, is the fact that in every field of science, it's the job of an empirical scientist to falsify the data if he can, to prove it wrong. And I see a huge reticence to go after the theory of evolution that way. It's just not done, and if you do that, you get excluded from the Brotherhood. Oh, well, that's a whole thing I talk about in the book, too, is just, you know, this... this, Again, this purely objective science. People have spent their lives. They wrote their doctoral dissertations. Their whole, all their work and everything is built on belief in this in this evolutionary model. And the moment you threaten that, you threaten that, you know, to destroy their whole lives' work. And most people are not going to take too kindly to that. And oh, I caulk it in the book. I talk about what I call based on when Dwight D. Eisenhower called it the military-industrial complex. If you remember, I warned about the scientific-industrial complex. An awful lot of people who have an awful lot of vested interest, economic, intellectual, prestige, whatever, in maintaining the status quo. Now, I'm not saying people are evil, people are dishonest. I'm just saying people are people. And we're exceedingly subjective beings in all that we do, and that includes scientists and the scientific community. You know, there are scientists I know that have questions, and I've invited them to come on the program, but they're scared to. Well, I'll lose tenure. I'll be mocked. And and so they're afraid to ask the questions that they legitimately hold. I want to flip it a little bit because um, I want to talk a little bit about Christians now. We've gone after the scientists. I want to ask you, why do you think— so many Christians feel this need to capitulate or at least accommodate the theory of evolution into their faith structure. Well, you know, obviously I don't know individual motives. I don't know individual hearts. 
But if you were to ask me, I, I, I think, I, I, I think it's something like this, Sean. And again, I'm just. I, right. This I, is I also not to... empirical science, but yeah, no, just yeah. based anecdotally, as you talk to people, what, what's the impression you get? Well, I get the impression. Look, Christianity is weird. Okay. Yeah. We believe in some really weird stuff. God came down into and took human body and he went and he died on the cross and we we have faith through believing in him and we trust in him and 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 so on and and it there has always been a very anti-intellectual strain in christianity certainly now, true in the early roman empire right they, yeah, they, the christians yeah. were set aside as stupid sure sure and i think even today because you know we've got a lot of very deep intellectual christian thinkers but I think there's this fear among, look, who wants to be rejected? Who wants to be, oh, you're a Christian, you go, you believe that silliness? But oh, no, no, look how sophisticated I am. I am sophisticated. I believe in this stuff. So I think there's that one level. But here's another level, Sean, that I think is important. And I talk about this in the book. There has been a very powerful and a Effective. And I know this is a negative word, but I don't know how any other word to use. The, the propaganda coup behind Darwin and Darwinist evolution has been phenomenal. I mean, the entire academy has been swept up by it. And when you're, if you're around all sorts of very smart people who have been indoctrinated in this teaching, who've been nurtured on it, who have been taught to interpret the world through it, and who really believe it, and they've built up all this, quote, evidence to back it up. In other words, they really believe it. They believe it's true. And so what do you do if you're a Christian and you're, you're caught up? Wow, but the science proves it. The science shows it's true. Then they almost feel like, I have no choice. I have to believe it, so i got to find a way to incorporate it. And the whole point of my book for better, for worse, as I wanted to show them, no, you don't have to believe right. it just because science says it. And that's the point. You know, I don't get into a whole lot of, in the book, you'll notice, I don't get into a whole lot of the science itself because I'm not qualified for that. I don't want to argue that. I want to look back and say, well, they say they prove it. Well, what do they mean? They say they have evidence. Well, what does that mean? And you start to look at it and, whoa, it's nowhere near as strong and as certain. See, I've been liberated. When somebody comes and says to me, but it's science, I don't have to bow down and genuflect before it. And again, when, when the science so blatantly contradicts the word of God, then it, it's even easier for me to reject it. So anyway, yeah. but I think that's the point, too. I think a lot of them because they believe it. They've been propagandized by people who truly believe it, who truly think they've got good evidence for it. And then when, when it's assumed and all it's taught in colleges, when at the academia, they just assume it, they don't question it. It's assumed like, you know, like the round, like the round earth is assumed. And again, notice, 
we can study everyday things to help see right. that the Earth is round. We've got it's to take a, a quick break, Cliff. Yeah. When we come back, I want to talk about the implications for Christianity if you do bring this okay. thought system in. What does it say about God and about faith and the story of salvation? I'm with Cliff Goldstein, baptizing the devil, back in a moment. searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter the most to you. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we are back from the break. We're in our final segment on today's episode of Disclosure. My name is Sean Boonstra. With me in studio, or at least by phone, is Clifford Goldstein, author of a brand new title on theistic evolution and the implications for faith, uh, Baptizing the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. You know, Cliff, one of the things that I've noticed, um, you know, Christians often feel intimidated, but that's so factual. And you mentioned being liberated. I, I was thinking when you were saying that, that uh, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Bible's still in its first edition. It's never had to change. We've had to apologize for how we applied it, but it's still yeah. in its first edition after thousands of years. And my science textbook was in 100 editions nearly by the time I bought it. Oh, as a freshman, college freshman, 30, I won't say how many years ago. I like that. I like that. First edition, yeah. Yeah. Um, let me talk a little bit, though. We were talking about the fact that Christians feel intimidated. They don't need to. There's lots on our side. You don't have to feel captivated. You can actually be more intelligent if you know the questions to ask, and that's one of the reasons I think your book's important. It gives people the right questions to ask. Um, but I want to talk about what happens to Christian faith if we do accommodate. What implications does it have for the Christian faith if we say, all right, maybe God used 4.5 billion years to bring the planet into existence and several hundred million years to bring human beings into existence, and we started as you know, protoplasm and worked our way up. What implications does that have for faith if we, if we accommodate? Well, boy, you could get me off on that. Well, I truly, Sean... I have no idea how you could salvage Christianity in any way, shape, or form if evolution is true. And in other words, you're saying, are you saying, Cliff, that the tens, that thousands and thousands of PhDs in physics, in biology, in chemistry, in paleontology, in geology, that these thousands of PhD, these Nobel laureates, these experts, these experts in all these things, you're saying all of them are wrong? Yep, that's what I'm saying. They're wrong. It's the word of man contrary to the word of God. 
And all you have to do, and I touch on this in the book, is look at some of the well-meaning attempts by some Christians to attempt to harmonize evolutionary model with the, the, the Genesis creation account. It's really kind of sad. It's really, if, if, if evolution is true, you, you, you can read anything you want into the Bible. You know, it's like I even said to someone, even if I weren't going to take Genesis literally, how do you possibly, how can you possibly find any way at all to interpret it in any honest way to fit billions of years of evolution. Well, one of the questions I've got is nobody questions whether or not Jesus of Nazareth, well, some people question whether or not yeah. he was actually real. Most don't. And so you've got these you've got these genealogies in the Bible and I well, ask some people, where are you going to draw the line? Who's the myth and who's real? Which father was a mythological being? Where where's that line in Genesis? Well, you even have it stronger in Romans 5 where you've got Paul in this whole chapter he talks about Adam, and then at one point he talks about Moses, and then at one point he talks about Jesus. And there's very clear, he time again in Romans 5, the first man, Adam, did something, the second man, Jesus, came and undid it. You've got probably half a dozen times this clear link between Adam and Jesus. And if you get rid of Adam, which you really have to in an evolutionary right. model, in an evolution, you cannot have this pristine Adam. Then you destroy, then what do you do? You basically destroy the whole foundation of what's the key doctrine in Christianity, the atonement of Jesus on the cross. In, in New Testament theology, that's inextricably tied to a literal Adam. And once you get rid of the literal Adam, the whole foundation for Christ's death on the cross is usurped. And I'm sorry, that's too big of a price to pay to try to fit in something that's just science. It's just science. And as you said, science changes all the time. It does. You know, one of the big questions for me, Cliff, is that I was reading in Colossians last night, and it's, it's speaking of Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. That's why the Bible calls him the beginning and the ending of creation. God the oh, Father... Yeah presents creation, he, he creates through Jesus, but it's for Jesus, and it's through Jesus, and so it's kind of a gift to his son, if you look at it. Here's creation, this is a gift for you. What kind of a gift would a tooth-and-nail Darwinian world be for God the Father, a God of love, to give his son? In fact, it's funny, I've even read... The sad thing is, the sad thing is, is I've read atheists, evolutionists, who bring that exact point up who bring that point up and say, what kind of God is this who's going to create that way? You know, they, they're able to see what this says about the character of God in ways that professed Christians, Christians can't see. And, you know, and think about this, too, and I touch on this in the book. You know, a lot of Christians don't like Richard Dawkins. And yet, think about it. What, if you're a theistic evolutionist, you are you are you are you are very much have vastly vastly more in common with Richard Dawkins than you do with me. Right. Okay. 
I mean, you have much more. I mean, all the only difference between you and Richard Dawkins is Richard Dawkins doesn't believe that God was involved in the process at all. Uh, but otherwise, you, like Dawkins, believe it began billions of years ago. There was this violent predation, billions of years of violence and suffering and chance and species die out, new species come in, and then bit by bit over all these years, red tooth and claw, and on and on and on, all this suffering, till eventually you get to something, what, I, you know, humans, I, you know, what kind of humans, I don't know. And I don't know, there's got to be something wrong with uh, some kind of compromise in which you are, in which Christians are almost in complete harmony with somebody like Richard Dawkins and totally out of harmony with, say, somebody like yourself, Sean, or myself. Something's wrong with this picture. Well, does Genesis, in your opinion, Cliff, does Genesis do a better job of describing the reality we live in than Darwin did? Oh, of course. Of course, Genesis does. I mean, it's uh, because, you know, here's the thing, Sean. Look, even with all the violence and all, I look around at reality. I could look around at a flower. I could look around at a, at, at, at a baby. I could look around at a cherry tree blossoming. And yeah, there's, there's sickness and there's blight and there's all this. Through it, you can see the benevolence and love of God that is expressed when God saw all that he made, and it was tov me'od, very good. You see that? I mean, the, the colors and, and the tastes and all that and the beauty. What, where does that fit in the Darwinian model? You know, it, it's, oh my goodness, it, it's, it, it's, and my thinking, again, I'm coming at it from a preconceived notion already. I know what I believe, but it sure seems to make a whole lot more sense to me than the Darwinian. Well, you know, one of the assumptions in the Darwinian model is that natural selection is moving us upward and better, and I've often wondered, well, why would we necessarily be getting better, and what would better be? Um, and then I, I, I think back to the wise man in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, where it says, God has put eternity in the hearts. Okay. Why, why is it that we can recognize something's wrong with this world, and why would we even long for something better, uh, what are we basing that on? What's the standard for improvement? What's the standard for utopia? Yeah, well, that way you would argue. Plus two, another argument is if evolution is true, how do we know that anything we, why should we believe anything at all that we believe is true? We were programmed merely to survive, not to look for truth. And, and some have challenged, well, why should we trust anything we, why should we even trust evolution is true? If we evolved, if we truly evolved, then we really should question evolution, because how do we know it's true? We were just evolved to survive, not necessarily to know what's true or what's right or wrong. And that brings up a whole question, too, the whole question of where does morality come from? Well, Why would yeah. moral, how do we become moral beings in an evolutionary we might need We might need another show for that, because I'm looking at the clock. We've got like three sure. minutes left. But, but okay. you do raise an important point. All of the collectivist movements of the um, of the 20th century that were trying to build utopia here on Earth, 
followed an evolutionary model. Hey, why don't we just dispense with people that are in the way of our ambitions? It's survival of the fittest. So you get the death camps in Germany and you get the um, labor camps in the Soviet Union. Hey, we got to get rid of these people. And there's no reason that would be wrong if it's strictly a matter of survival. Yeah, well, that is an argument. Now, you know, you got some very smart Darwinians and they would argue, they try to bring up arguments against it. But I'll never forget one time many years ago, I was visiting Dachau and they have the locals, local Germans would volunteer to give tours. And I'll never forget this German giving the tour. He started out his tour of Dachau by talking about Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution. Now, that in and of itself doesn't make the theory false. Right. The fact that you could take it and, you know, we could talk as believers about all the bad things Christians have done in the name of Christianity, and we happen to believe it's true. But the point is, it's not an absolutely illogical leap to go from origin of the species to to something like that cow. And there were people in, and in fact, if you remember too, I talk about it in the book, I got three great quotes from people talking about the fact, is it just coincidental that Darwin lives in the dog-eat-dog capitalist um, world of competition of 18th century England, that in that environment he comes up with this dog-eat-dog competitive view of origins? It's an interesting question, and I asked, you know, had he grown up in czarist Russia, Maybe he would have come up with a whole different theory of origin. Mark, Marx himself came out of the same pot a hundred years later and yeah. uh, industrial revolution. Listen, the book, thanks for joining me on the show today, Cliff. We're down to like a minute 30, but let me Baptizing plug this one more time. Baptizingthedevil.com. Baptizing. BaptizingTheDevil.com. It'll take you to the link at Amazon. Subtitle, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. Cliff, you've always written good books. I really do think this is your best. And, well, I appreciate that. Uh, well, yeah, it takes a lot for me to admit that on the air, yeah, but I, I know. like your you books. You say that to me, too. Man, you must, you must be really—that must be hard for you to be saying that. Well, like I was that. hard up for a book, so I, yeah. I, I just pulled this one off the shelf. Yeah. I thought, this is all I've got. No, yeah. folks, it is an important book, and if you've been struggling with how do you answer, what are the questions you ask when confronted with the idea that faith and science are irreconcilable, um, yeah. there are questions you can ask that demonstrate that there's a lot of faith on the other side, too. Assumptions. This is a book you yeah. want to add to your library. Cliff, thank you for joining me yeah. on the show today. Um, BaptizingTheDevil.com, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. What you believe about this world says a lot about what you believe about God, what you believe about your fellow man. And, uh, you know, we often think that people uh, had to exercise faith years ago because we're ignoramuses, but the book of Hebrews makes it quite clear that by faith we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God. It was always a matter of faith, and there have always been competing world ideas. The Bible is still in its first edition. It has never been proven wrong. And so you have a solid place to stand. Baptizing the Devil will give you an even more solid platform to stand on. Thanks for joining us this week on Disclosure. I'm Sean Boonstra. Until next time. 